ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A young girl of five or six arrives at a women's shelter with her mother, escaping a violent husband and father. We're in suburban Melbourne. It's the mid-90s and they speak Farsi to each other because they've just arrived pretty recently from Iran. Hi, I'm Jason DeRosso. This is The Screen Show. And that image that I just described is inspired by the real-life experience of writer-director Nora Niasari, whose debut feature, Shida, opened the Melbourne International Film Festival earlier in the year, won an audience award at Sundance, and has just shown at the Toronto Film Festival. On the eve of the film's Australian theatrical release, she's my guest on the show today. But she's coming up in just a moment. First, I'm going to introduce you to British writer-director Gareth Edwards, who's made a very different film called The Creator, a science fiction movie that imagines Earth divided between Western and Eastern hemispheres over the issue of robots and the role of artificial intelligence in our lives. This is the near future. The West has banned robots, but East Asia has found a way to benefit from them. In the film, we follow a Western operative sent behind enemy lines on a search-and-destroy mission who finds himself unexpectedly emotionally attached to an android that has the form of a young boy. The creator stars John David Washington in this central role, a man who comes to understand the fallacies of his side's propaganda, a role not unlike Martin Sheen's in Apocalypse Now. Meanwhile, Gemma Chan plays the girlfriend who disappears from his life too early, leaving deep emotional scars. Alison Janney is also in this excellent as always, dressed in fatigues and hauling high-caliber weaponry with more conviction than she has any right to. Edwards has made a name for himself across three features as a talented director of visual spectacle. There was Monsters, then Godzilla, and then Rogue One, which he shot with Melbourne-born cinematographer Greg Fraser, who also shot Dune. Well, he's back working with Fraser again, and this collaboration proves fruitful here as well. In a film that seems to take a page from Coppola's war-torn Southeast Asian village landscapes in Apocalypse Now, and another page from Ridley Scott's various sci-fi adventures. I'll tell you more about the film after the interview, but right now I'll let you hear from Gareth Edwards, who, amongst other things, offers an interesting insight into his unconventional filmmaking methods, something I'd describe as reverse-engineered movie-making. He's coming up. When the war started... Protected me. Took better care of me than humans would have. They're not people, Maya. It's just programming. Ten years ago today, the artificial intelligence created to protect us detonated a nuclear warhead in Los Angeles. This is a fight for our very existence. Sergeant Taylor. We are this close to winning the war. But the AI are developing a super weapon. Retrieve it. Or they win. Gareth Edwards, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks for having me. It seems like this year there's been so much talk about artificial intelligence, um, a lot of it negative. In Hollywood, the actors and writers are partly on strike because of fears over 
artificial intelligence. Your film takes a, a different approach. It's a largely sympathetic one, which of course isn't new in science fiction, but tell me a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, when, I mean, I wrote, started writing the film, um, the screenplay like four or five years ago when AI was like this, like was like flying cars and living on the moon. It wasn't going to really happen maybe in my lifetime. And I was using AI and, and robotics in a way as, um, a metaphor for people who are different to us and the other, you know, and, and, and the way that we always see them as the enemy, et cetera. And then really interesting, once you start writing that and use AI as your basis, it's really interesting dilemmas quickly came to the surface. Like, um, how would you know if, if they're real or not? Like what happens if they do something you don't like, would you turn them off? What if they don't want to be turned off? And all these sort of questions that are quite common now in the news cycle, um, back then was like more, to, you know, had more in common, like it was something you'd read in an Isaac Asimov book. Um, and they've, and it's just, it's just only recently, like watching the movie back, it has, it's, we've, I mean, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but it has a lot more weight and power than we could ever have like hoped for in a way, because it, it does, we didn't shy away from those questions in the heart of the film. And, and I'm going to be fascinated to see what, how people react to it really. And there's also this strong theme, I think, about the relations between the West and the East, which are kind yeah. of a bit general in this film, which is, you know, set you know, some decades into the future. But clearly there's this sense that it's also engaging, I think, with a sort of with with the emergence of China as a world power. And 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 I'm wondering how much that came into your thinking as well. Um think and and thinking about you know, uh, they're also in the news, aren't they, recently, China and its capacity to produce its own chips, um, its, its capacity to, to produce its tech uh, independently of, of Western supply chains. All of that seems to be a current, um, you know, a current news item and news cycle that, that is quite foreboding as it's presented in the West. And, and I think your film taps into that as well. Yeah, I mean, in, in the sense, definitely in the sense of when you are not from a certain part of the world and you see behavior, vi and vice versa on both sides, right? When you see certain behavior, there's an instinct to get paranoid about it and think that, you know, and, and make someone else the enemy and, and worry that there's an agenda that's like, just, you know, pushes up the tensions between both sides. And I didn't have any geopolitical like agenda when making the movie. What, what I wanted to do was kind of set up a world where there was these two opposing sides, wherever they might be in the world, and then take our central character and throw them into the middle of it and, and have them deal with the consequences and, and sort of start to see and question their beliefs about people who are different and not, and, and that maybe, you know, what you thought was true isn't playing out that way. And I did actually try, and I have a document somewhere. I tried every single country in the world and, and, and it, and it was just, there was something about, um, like Southeast Asia, but Asia and, and the West and like this sort of yin yang spirituality wise and, and culture wise that just was a lot easier to imagine that essentially what happens is in the West, a terrible catastrophe takes place, which is blamed on AI. Um, and as a result, AI is completely banned in America and, but it's, you know, the catastrophe didn't happen 
over in Asia. So they just carried on creating AI products to the point where they're like human-like level. And so this war is going on where they're trying to eradicate AI over there. And, and at the heart of it is the, the fear that they're going to create something that's going to supersede humans. And they do. And it's this, I won't give too much away, but if you've seen the poster or the trailer, it's essentially a child. Um, they find out that the thing that they need to eradicate is a little six-year-old girl. And so the dilemma of the movie for our main character is I can save humanity. All I have to do is kill this kid. And they end up on a journey together that where he starts to doubt and question everything because it just like chatting to chat GPT, it seems so convincing. It reminded me a little bit of, and it's not a film I've seen you quote, but um, or reference in the press materials, but it reminded me a little bit of um, sections of Spielberg's AI. Okay. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is one of my favorite films. Of course, there's also the um, the Apocalypse Now clear sort of reference. It seems like a framework for this film, this going behind enemy lines idea in which all your preconceptions are turned on their head. Um, and And, of course, that links into some of these East Asian settings as well. How much was that a framework for you that was that was a sort of guiding light? Uh, totally. I mean, you can't, I mean, essentially what happened is I, I hate writing. It's like the world's worst homework. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And and so the only way I can write- a Why is that? Why is that? Why is it so bad for you? You know, okay. So basically um, if I, as a filmmaker, if filmmaking was like making music, the way I would make music is I would pick up a guitar and just start strumming chords and go, you know, and just try and figure out a song that way. But in Hollywood, they say, you can't do that. You have to write sheet music, right? A screenplay. It has to be in a courier font and it has to be like 120 pages. And it's not how my brain works. My brain works by just imagining a film in my head and visualizing it. And, and so it's like, you then have to then, it's like strumming a guitar and going, what is that, a C? Is that a D, D minor? What the hell is that? Looking it up on a little chart and then writing it down. And it's a very laborious way to make a film. And, but is this why you've reverse engineered this film? I, 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 because I had to interrupt there because I know that there's this term in the production notes whereby you've shot first, in a sense, and yeah. a lot of what normally happens before the shoot or is organized before the shoot in, in this process on this film, the creator happens afterwards in, in, in the way that you've sort of organized that explain to me that. And is that, does that enter into what you've just said about how you hate writing? Have you, have you invented a different way to write in, in the process? It's probably all part of the same issues I've got in my brain, you know, why I probably need therapy or something. Cause it's like, I might, I just, my favorite way to, to approach a film is essentially what happens is, is you have ideas and there's a limit. Essentially you're kind of inspired by, I guess, subconsciously or not by films and visuals and books, whatever that you've had, you experienced. And, and there's a limit to like how original anything you do could be really, because you're kind of pulling from things subconsciously. And the greatest feeling in the world is when you, when something comes along and, and infects that and breaks it and makes it into something else, like an organism, like you've got your DNA, someone else's DNA, and it creates this new offspring that's greater than either. And so you're always looking for something to come along and infect it and, and sort of destroy it um, so it can be even better. And, and so, yeah, I think the process, I was really interested in changing the process of how you make film 
So it could, it could be like all the advantages you have from doing a, a small, low-budget, independent movie and how, how much creative freedom you have doing that, but with the scope and scale of a big, giant blockbuster. And so what happens is you normally you design a world, especially a science fiction, when you design this world, show it to the studio, they'll say, this is lovely, we love it, it's a $300 million movie, and you're going to have to, you can't find any of these locations, you have to build it all in a, in a, on, in a sound studio and shoot it against green screen. And what, you know, before you know it, you're just making a movie like everybody else. And, and so it was like, no, 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 what we want to do is want to go to real locations in the real world, that are closest thing we can find to what's written in the script and then shoot them, however they look, however it turns out, cut the movie together. And then when we finished editing or towards the end, then we design the film and then we create all the artwork. And so we give all our frames from our edited film to concept artists and they painted over them and you know we went back and forth but essentially the science fiction was put on top of the finished film rather than like designing it and then having to move heaven and earth to recreate those images it was more like let's go let's go roll with the punches have all these happy accidents all this stuff we couldn't possibly have anticipated all this lucky moments include it in the movie and then and then spend all the money after that and it was like a way more efficient way of doing it. Like it's still expensive to make a film like this, but it's like a third of what it's eighty million dollars like or something, isn't it? I was quite surprised. It's a, it's well, it's listed on the Wikipedia, you know, for example. It's, yeah, yeah. But it's it's lower than I would have thought the budget would be, and it's for that reason yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and I would definitely. I think we could push it even further. Like, I, if I, I, I wouldn't want to go back to the other way of making a film. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. Gareth Edwards, director and co-writer of The Creator, a film which, for all its visual panache, has a framing problem. Conceptually, I mean. The best films about androids explore the blurred lines between the human and the non-human. They manipulate us into feeling affection or sympathy for the robots, a strategy that disorientates us, that alienates us from our own humanity in order, perhaps, to be able to interrogate that humanity a little better who we are, what makes us human. Well, the central bond in the creator between Washington's character and the robot child falls short for me and certainly never comes close to, for example, Spielberg's uncanny facsimile of the mother-son relationship in AI. If you remember, that's where Frances O'Connor plays a mother who bonds with a robot child, played by Hayley Joel Osment. More broadly, The film doesn't make a compelling emotional case for a society that's not only comfortable with robots, but happy to have them around. Whenever a squadron of android police appear in this film, guns blazing, they always seem like such sinister figures, despite the film's careful attempts to reveal humanity's evils. I was never quite convinced of the fact that I should be cheering on the machines. A mixed bag for me, at least. The creator is out this week. Meanwhile, next week around Australia you'll get to see a very different movie, the debut feature from my next guest, Nora Niasari. The film is called Shader, and it's about a young woman called Shader who's escaping an abusive marriage. She seeks refuge in a women's shelter in suburban Melbourne in the 90s. Shader is especially vulnerable because she's in Australia on a scholarship, just like her husband, having recently arrived from Iran. The film is a tense and captivating drama, balancing the story of Shader's tentative first steps towards an independent life, making friends at the shelter and also finding allies in the Iranian expat community, with the ongoing relationship with her estranged and volatile husband, 
who has visiting rights over their daughter. Shida is an intelligent, vividly imagined film, effectively blending tense melodrama with poetic evocations of childhood and friendship. It navigates the myriad layers of cultural difference in this story in ways that feel authentic and natural, avoiding didacticism. And there are great central performances. First of all, from Zaha Amir Ebrahimi as Shaida, Selena Zahednia is gorgeous as the little girl, and Leah Purcell as the shelter's manager is also one of the film's standouts. Osama Sami, meanwhile, who you might remember from the Australian film Ali's Wedding, is the film's softly spoken shadow figure who inflicts so much damage. Violence in the film is mostly inferred, but it's ever-present on a psychological level. In this interview, you'll hear me talk more about the formal aspects that I enjoyed about the movie and about a couple of extraordinary collaborators Nora Niasari had on her journey to make this first film, namely the late Abbas Kiarostami and executive producer Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Lara, this is uh, Shada. She's uh, here with her daughter, Mona. Then who's that? What does that We met Shada. But her name is Shada. The judges issued Hossein temporary access. Uh, I, I don't. It understand. means Hossein can see Mona alone, unsupervised. Salam. Salam. Bobar baalim koni. Nora Niasari, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks so much. This is such a personal film and obviously, you know, it's based in on experiences or inspired by experiences you live through. I have to ask from the beginning, how difficult was that or easy? I don't know, was this always a story you wanted to tell or, or did you have to overcome some kind of reticence? I would say I'm still overcoming it. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. You know, it, it, it's a story that's always lived inside me, you know, since I was five years old, uh, living in the women's shelter with my mother. And, uh, you know, when I became a filmmaker and went to film school and started thinking about what what my first feature should be or what I wanted it to be, um, you know, the world of the women's shelter was really ever-present in my mind. Um, it was something I hadn't seen on screen before. And, you know, my mother has always been such a huge inspiration for me uh, in terms of her courage and, and strength and ability to overcome so many obstacles uh, in this country to, to find freedom. And so, it, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was a decision that I made six years ago uh, to actually make the film and I had to consult with my, my mother and, you know, um, it was a joint decision that we made. Um, and did that take a while to, to take that decision? Did you have to, were, were you nutting out the ethics of it all between yourselves for a while? Yeah, or was it we were. And it was in the process of writing. So because I had such fractured memories as a child, I asked her to write, um, her experiences of living in the women's shelter. And so she spent around six months, um, writing this, this memoir, uh, which I, you know, helped her focus which which areas of her life and which characters, you know, 
And so we were kind of revisiting the experience together. But it was quite emotional as well, you know, especially for her revisiting all of that trauma. She she's um, she has this incredible ability to kind of put things in a box <laughs> and not revisit them. But she was so generous in in the way that she opened that box up and just let it all flow. And I think it was quite cathartic for her to do that. But it was a long process and, it, you know, we would have these very challenging conversations in the middle of it, like, you know, if we should include this or that and why she felt strongly about one thing over another. And, um, and, um, because you as a filmmaker as well, I mean, it's your film and the film's not actually real life. It's a different thing, right? Yeah. And so it becomes its own thing. So at, at what point did you need to, did you ever feel as a filmmaker, you needed to, um, pull rank over your mother over certain <laughs> certain things because, I mean, did you have to remind her at mm. certain points in those conversations that this was going to be a film and to a degree it had to work within its own set of logical parameters? Yeah, you know? I, I didn't want to restrict her too much during that process at all. You know, obviously I wanted her to, you know, be as open as she could. And so I was more like holding space for her, encouraging her, being her sounding board, uh, but then when it came to me, I, I translated what she wrote. It was, she wrote it all in Farsi and, and uh, it was around 50,000 words in English. And then I took that and I went to Spain very far away from her and from Australia to do a writing residency where I wrote the first draft. So it was really important for me to have that separation, um, to be far away and to kind of discover the stories and what the narrative structure of the screenplay would be um, you know, separate to what really happened to us, you know, really finding the cinematic potential of the story. Um, so, yeah, at that point I really kind of found my voice as the screenwriter and filmmaker and, uh, you know, I, I I let her read every single draft. I would take on her notes. Sometimes I wouldn't. <laughs> Sometimes we would have arguments and disagreements and she'd she'd say, oh, it didn't happen like that or oh, they didn't say it like that and... And, you know, I, I, you know, at that point I was like, this is, this is a film and I'm a filmmaker and you need to trust me. And she did. And she was very, um, generous when she needed to be. And, um, also took space when she needed to as well. So it was a real negotiation for, for several years. Was that, uh, you know, that period in, in Spain, was that where you were mentored by Kiristami? I was mentored by Kiristami in 2015. Um, so it was a few years before that, that I went to Spain to do that workshop with him. Uh, I went to Spain for this, um, early 2018. So Spain features quite prominently then in your, (laughs) is there any particular, I mean, was it out of the context you made during that period at the Kiristami workshop that That made you return? That Mm. was a part of it. You know, um, Kiristami had sadly passed away in between the workshop and me doing this residency. And, um, you know, I had such beautiful memories of um, being mentored by him in Barcelona. And, yeah, I think I think part of me, like, spiritually wanted to go back to that place. And I revisited the, the beaches um, where we walked and talked and where I made a short film. And, yeah, I think... I think in a way I was I was really attracted to that. And also I'd lived in Chile for some time in my 20s and so I could speak Spanish and it felt like um, 
What is this um, <laughs> sort of Spanish language pull on your life? It seems to go broader than, oh. than well, it definitely goes broader than just Spain in that case. I mean, I, I, I went to Chile uh, for the first time when I was 21 and I just fell in love with the culture and the people and I felt like so many parallels between Chile and, you know, art and history with Iran um, and also just like the family values and dynamics just felt so similar and, and you know, the passive aggressive tendencies felt so familiar too. <laughs> so, but, you know. You don't have Chilean, there's not a branch of your no family Chilean that went family. to No, to but I, I, I just fell in love with the, the poetry and the culture and I was there uh, making a documentary about, um, you know, a family that had been divided by um, the earthquake that happened in 2010. So I was invited there to, to film a workshop and then I discovered that story and I followed them for several years and made a 50-minute doco that went to Sheffield Docfest and did a number of festivals. But, yeah, I don't know. I fell in love with Chile and similarly with Spain and, I, you know, I think it's a beautiful – they're both beautiful countries and just, uh, yeah. I have to ask you about Kiristami before we move on. What are your memories of him? Is there a particular – was there something he said to you that that has remained with you um, in terms of advice? Mm -hmm. Where do I start? Uh, you know, I, I grew up watching his films and he I idolised him and when I met him I was just speechless, but he was so generous. Um, he, he came up to me and said, oh, I heard you came all the way from Australia for this workshop. Thank you. you know? and, and that was really the beginning in terms of, you know, he, he was so humble and so grounded and and had this ability to be present with whoever he was talking to, whether it was like a shopkeeper or a child, and you know, or filmmakers, like, the, and, and that's something that I really held on to. But in terms of, you know, advice with me, I mean, he, he was very curious always um, and he, he always knew how to ask questions to like, unravel you like unravel your history without you knowing you know um he, he you know he asked about my father and and you know my relationship with my father and his character and it, you know just just because I was telling him the circumstances of arriving in Australia and, and he really triggered you know a lot of curiosity in me to to discover more about you know the moral compass of my father and and how things happened the way they did because I, you know, I I always saw things through my mother's lens and through my lens and um, I, I think because of the short film I was making there, uh, which was from the father's perspective of um, of an access visit with a, with his daughter, it it triggered a lot of these conversations and and they really stayed with me because um, they were questions I hadn't asked myself. Let's talk about Shada and and the the form that the film started to take early. You've talked about how you had fragmented memories mm -hmm. of the period because you were five years old, like the mm -hmm. like the child in the film, the mm -hmm. character, mm -hmm. um, and that which is normal for a child. I mean, well, do you feel that the fragmented memories is because you were so young at the time, or do you think it was because of the trauma that you experienced and that there's a lot blocked out there? I think it's a combination of the two. Yeah, it's definitely a combination of the two. Like I was five, six years old. Uh, we went through a lot and, you know, I've done a lot of trauma therapy since then and 
you know, there's a, there's a blurriness to my memories. Um, because the child in the film doesn't witness a lot. No. But but we, yeah. we know that she's witnessed things before mm-hmm. the film begins and she does witness yeah. some terrible things in the film also. Mm. Um Mm-hmm. So there's this, and I think the f- film communicates that very powerfully, especially when the the camera's with the child. I think at one point, at mm-hmm. a climactic point in the film, mm-hmm. um, mm. she's sort of crouched behind a, an armchair in someone else's house. Mm-hmm. There's a party yeah. and something's about to, well, something's going down and she's found a corner in that house to hide mm. and the father finds her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's right. And... Uh, it's it's interesting because some of the conversations that happen between Mona and Hossein, the fictional characters, are conversations that I really had, but, you know, some of them as an adult, some of them as a child. It's, um, it's hard to say what's, um, you know, what, what really happened in a way. It's, it's, it's really a blur. It's really a blur for me, but... In terms of the screenplay in the film, like I wanted to find the emotional truth of those conversations, of those characters as they existed on, you know, um, on paper um, and the way that the, the actors brought them to life. You know, it, it became beyond my memories. Um, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, Osama Sami's wonderful he as is. the father. He's incredible and I'm so, you know, just I'm so happy that, we, you know, took this journey together. I, I hadn't seen him in a dramatic role, and uh, but I've been friends with him for around ten years, and right. uh, I knew the circumstances of his life. You know, I knew he had he had been through a divorce and had, you know, two daughters, and um, you know, grew up in a religious family and grew up in Iran, and so there were a lot of kind of real life circumstances like, that I knew Osama could tap into for this character but at the same time he's so charming and so funny and has this um magnetism uh when you meet him there's a real aggressiveness a passive aggressiveness i think you, mm-hmm. you, well, you said that term earlier you used that term and mm. it's so true in his character too it, mm. he's a passive aggressive character mm. and then very briefly in the film he's also just an aggressive aggressive character yeah i mean the thing is that um he loves his daughter mm. and he wants his wife back. He want he he wants, you know, he wants things to go back to the way they were. And he has his own moral compass, which is really um, shaped by the family he grew up in, the society he grew up in. He's a victim as well uh, of of the context and and social you know structures that he came to be in. I like that point early in the film. If you're talking about. I like the way you build this broader context because obviously this is one of those migrant stories where you have the sense of the broader Australian context. And mm-hmm. in the case of this little microcosm here, mm. there are a lot of, it's a very multicultural group of women mm-hmm. in this house. So that's mm. interesting, obviously. But then there's a moment where um, Zara Amir Ibrahimi, who plays Shada, who's marvellous in it, is with the the head of the, the the woman who runs the shelter, who's played by Leah Purcell. Also, a really good character, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Very sort of that salt of the earth Aussie, but not in a kind of treacly way. Yeah. She's really good. Anyway, she's there's translating going on, and there's a interpreter on the phone, and there's a moment mm-hmm. where it's quite chilling. Actually, 
when you realise that Shida is actually afraid of people within mm-hmm. her own community. Mm-hmm. I don't even like the word community when we talk about migrant groups because it's yeah. kind of overly homogenous and all that. But yeah. you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's this sense that um, mm-hmm. there's a sense of anonymity that needs, or... but perhaps she's being watched in this yeah. case if she's been recognised. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I love that sort of from all sides, mm. this woman is is on guard, really. She's mm. on guard against kind of being misunderstood in a broader Australian context but also being mm-hmm. sort of manipul- manipulated from within her own quote-unquote community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that, you know, we experienced um, right up until I was, you know, early 20s, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, some of the rumours and the gossip and the, you know, the misconceptions uh, about my about my mother, about our place, you know, in the community. And many of those seeds were planted by my father many years ago. Because um, how, ra- how rare is it, do you think, in the cohort that your mother and, and mm-hmm. you sort of represent, how rare is it for a woman to leave... Um, a dysfunctional or abusive marriage? Uh, at that time, it was very rare. And there was so much stigma for divorced women um, to the point where, you know, in Iran, it was just, it was impossible for her to stay in Iran. Like her parents were like, go. Uh, because, because they were both here on scholarships as young people, yeah, young married people exactly. with this daughter. and th- mm-hmm. And at that point, she was able to sort of, leave the marriage but even within australia how how rare was it within it was rare it was very rare within the I iranian mean, community you know maybe um there were a few women that we came across you know in the in those 15 years um that you know she's still friends with you know maybe like a handful of women that we came across uh but you know there's also been other women who who have reached out in similar situations wanting advice but they weren't able to leave or, um, you know, things backfired or, um, you know, it's, it's a very taboo kind of, um, there's, there's a lot of stigma around divorce, even still, I feel like, uh, especially when it comes to domestic violence, because, uh, you know, there's so, (laughs) there's so many expectations from your family, from the culture, from, you know, in terms of especially you see in the mother character in the film, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, excuses being made uh, for the violence and, and uh, you know, there's this encouraging message to, like, put up with it, to, to, to you know, find a way because, you know, we all have to, you know. So there isn't a lot of self-determination, I feel. Um and you know that's that's a that's a product of you know what what's what's been uh, you know the law in Iran, which is that the father gets custody, the woman has no rights really, you know he has to accept the divorce, um, you know all of the odds are stacked against you as a woman there, and and I feel like some of those, um you know, systems and beliefs and they get carried over when you migrate. It's not, even though the law here is with the woman, it's, you know, there's, there's this blurriness between what's moral, what's, what's the right values to uphold and, 
and also this the shame you know the the shame that comes with um wanting a different life um of uh wanting to be writing your own destiny um you know it's a very taboo thing very it's it's it takes a lot of courage for for a woman to go against that and that's that's one thing that I was always compelled by um, to write about in this film. I want to ask some formal things about the film. Um, yes, please. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw some things at you. All, you know, um, this isn't going to be double barrel. It's going to be triple barreled as a sort of question. But um, well, it's not even a question. My interviewees often hate this. They they'll look at me like, "Is that even a question?" But I'll throw these things at you. The hand, it's not really handheld. Tell me about the the sort of slightly loose mm. framing style, the slight movement in a lot of the frames and the decision behind that. Mm-hmm. I also really liked, speaking of movement, the presence of dance in the film. Mm-hmm. Again and again it's this motif, but yeah. kind of not in a corny way. There's one way where it's sort mm-hmm. of, but dance is, there's all sorts of dance. There's traditional dance. Mm-hmm. There's a disco scene, a nightclub yeah. scene with some, you know, 90s bangers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily a scene you expect to see in this film, you know. Mm-hmm. That's why it's great, I think. Yeah. It sort of takes you out of your out of out of your expectations of yeah, what you want to see. It does. You almost think, well, she's wearing a she's dressed up to go out with the other women from the shelter and mm. you you're expecting things to go a certain way or you're just wondering should she be wearing this dress? I mean, you're almost internalising certain expectations around the character that, that as an audience, I don't know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Is, is that, I think it's very yeah, interesting totally. that you find yourself internalising that. Why mm-hmm. is she wearing that dress? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. The, the There's alcohol being served in this bar. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, yeah, you know, the, she's taking risks every step of the way and 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 I like putting the audience in that position of um judgment i think it's important for for activating a conversation and movement generally like um dance is really important and the camera is always slightly slightly moving to me tell me about that well my dop and i you know we we really wanted to um you know ground the film in in a naturalism but with the emotional pull of a thriller and you know, we I really wanted it to be from a very subjective, intimate point of view. So we're always with Shada and Mona. Uh, we're either alongside them or seeing what they see. So I, I, I thought that the the intimacy of that was so important to ground the film, um, and especially in their relationship, which is you know at the core of the film. Um, so, you know, we wanted to take a, a very nimble, like handheld approach, but without it feeling like a documentary or, um, yeah, I wouldn't even call it handheld as or, such, yeah, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's a controlled, mm. um, and it, and it was a small camera, you know, we shot on an Alexa mini and we wanted to be, um, flexible to, you know, working with a child actor and when, what, what comes with that, you know, um, a lot of natural light and, you know, very, very, very minimum amount of crew um, around the the activity of the mother and daughter. We we were always aiming for an intimacy, um, you know, both within the performance and with the camera work, um, but also not wanting it to feel overly bleak, like 
the use of colour in the costumes and the lighting and, and the production design and the locations that we chose, um, you know, that vibrancy is always juxtaposing, you know, the inherent darkness of the story. Um, yeah, with this Persian New yeah, Year, which exactly. I think takes takes you know becomes something very vivid in mm-hmm. a couple of scenes, especially including mm-hmm. one sort of winter or aut- autumnal evening mm-hmm. in a park with sort mm-hmm. of fairy lights around from memory, something like that. But there's a sort of glowing effect to that, and mm-hmm. the women's shelter itself is quite a. Despite the fact that there are a few mm-hmm. sort of not not even barbs, but a few nasty looks and a few yeah. few sort of some sort of ten, a little bit of tension between some yeah. of the women in 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 the place mm. um it's it's this unremarkable 1980s brick and tile mm. house but you've created it into this mm. world that's quite warm yeah it's a character the shelter is a character and we always intended for that to be so that you know it's at once claustrophobic and warm it's like it holds you but it also you know separates you from the outside world so um yeah, finding that that house was was a, was an incredible search. <laughs> really? Yeah, it took a long time to find the right house um, that had the right lighting, the right you know um, architectural qualities. Period. You know, it's set in the nineties, so everything has this like intense consideration when you're looking at locations. Um, and obviously, like we had a lot of reference points in terms of the women's shelter that we were in. Um, and other shelters, other communal shelters um, that existed at the time, because you know nowadays women's shelters are, are not communal. You know, they're, they're you know each family is in a kind of unit, and then they share some common spaces around those units. But at that time, it was a share house. You know, it was like what you see in the film, um, and you know, that little microcosm of a world was just fascinating to me. And, you know, every bedroom has its own character and every every woman, you know, it's like whatever she could take on the night or the day of the escape. It's like... Is what she has. The mm. precious items mm. that they hold um, and the things that they accumulate, the things that they share as they, as they develop their friendships. And it's also a really transient place, you know, um, most women are only there for a couple nights, a couple of weeks. Um, Shade has been there for a long time because of the circumstances of, you know, not having family, not having residency, um, not having the support. So, you know, it's showing it's showing all different walks of life in this in this one place. And tell me about the these the sort of theme of um, or the atmosphere of paranoia that can creep into places like this and mm-hmm. and you know, the windows looking yeah. out onto the street and mm-hmm, why is mm-hmm. that car parked across the street? They've been parked there a little bit too long. Is it someone's husband that's discovered? Because obviously these places are secret as well. Mm-hmm. No one should know where they are. So no. tell me about sort of shooting mm-hmm. around a space like that, which is which does have all these mm-hmm. extra psychological layers. It's not just a normal mm-hmm. house. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think there's a bit of a misconception around um, women's shelters. Like, obviously, it's it's a safe house and the, the intention is to keep it secret. But it is a time, it, it is the most dangerous time for, for women and children after the escape. You know, the partners go to great lengths to find these women, to stalk them, um, to create issues, um, threats. And so, you know, even though you feel like you're safe, you're still, 
you know, one edge to the one eye to the street. Like you're you're still on edge. You're not completely free of it. Um, and I really wanted to capture that experience because it's something that we don't we don't we don't assume um, enough, and we don't understand enough. Um, you know how precarious that period of time is for women. Um, and in terms of like the cinematography and everything, I mean, what, as I said, it was like coming from that very intimate subjective place, but we also wanted to have this layer of like voyeurism and like long lens shots and seeing Shader through crowds and this notion that she, you know, is she being watched or is it in her head? Um, how, how do we, how can we discern what's, you know, the, the separation between those two things? And that was really important for us to convey for the audience because, I mean, when we see women escaping these situations, those are the questions we asked. We ask, we, we're like, oh, there's so much gaslighting. You know, there's there's so much disbelief for, for what they're going through or what they've been through. And, um, you know, I felt that, you know, that tension of like the intimacy and then the separation, it it kind of plants that seed for the audience to like, ask those same questions and and be in that uncomfortable space. Ibrahimi was such a find for you, I imagine. But mm-hmm. did, was she always on top of your list? Did you had you earmarked her as being your ideal shader or did she emerge through a process of auditioning many actors? It was um it was definitely a discovery in a sense of um you know uh, because we have Australian funding, um there's a requirement to find all of your cast in Australia. And we tried. We tried the best to find Shader here. I auditioned like over 100 women. Nobody hit the mark. Uh, so then we started looking internationally. And um, Zara was one of the first few that, that tapes that I looked at. And it was before she won Best Actress at Cannes, several months before that, before Holy Spider even came out. And um, she was recommended to me by Goldshifter Farahani, who's you know, prominent French Iranian actress. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she was just, as soon as I saw her tape, I was like, I found Shada. <laughs> I was so relieved. What about her tape? It was, convinced um, you? she just, she has this very captivating presence on camera. Um, she's able to be like incredibly vulnerable, fragile, but at the same time have, has this like inner strength and willpower that's really palpable. And so that duality was something that really drew me uh, to her. And also, like, you know, her experiences as a woman, um, you know, the, the, the horrific things that she's been through. Because uh, where is she based now? She's based in Paris. Um, she's, been in, she's been in exile for many years now. But, um, you know, I'm sure readers can, can go down a rabbit hole. I mean, she's such an inspiring woman, I would say. She's one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever encountered, honestly. Um, Her courage and bravery and she just has so much in common with my mother and with the Shader character. And so, yeah, she she was able to bring so many emotional layers to her performance that, you know, exceeded my expectations. I have to ask about Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Um, Because she's (laughs) on board with this film as an executive producer. Yeah, she is. With Andrew Upton mm-hmm. and, um, and Coco friend, yeah, Francini, yeah. Um, how did she become involved in this project, and and how hands on was she, or how how 
what sort of contact contact did you have with her? Yeah, I mean, Kate Blanchett, she's she's a national treasure and uh, I've always admired her and her work. And uh, Vincent Sheehan, my co-producer, he had worked with her on a film called Little Fish and uh, he recommended that we reach out to Dirty Films uh, because we were looking for some partnerships um, to really put the film on on an international stage um, when we were putting the financing together because we wanted it to be, you know, an outward-facing film as well as an Australian film. And she read the script and she loved it and she said that she connected to it as a woman and she was incredibly passionate about it and, um, you know, we had a Zoom and um, she heard my vision for it and, you know, they immediately backed it. They became champions of the film and... Was that nerve-wracking doing a Zoom? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was like midnight Australia time because she was in in London and um, very nerve wracking. <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep like after the the Zoom because I was like so charged up with adrenaline. But she was so easy to talk to, so humble, approachable, and you know they've they've been really involved in a sense of um, you know giving notes and being incredible advocates and you know helping find partnerships and you know, with our distributors and sales agents. I mean, there's so much that happens behind the scenes. Um, it's hard to kind of put into words, but they have been incredible, incredible supporters of the film and I'm so grateful to them. I did want to ask about the theme of autumn and the tree mm-hmm. shot but mm-hmm. on, and the first tree shots outside the window of the, of the library. I don't want to give anything away though because yeah, it's such a nice, it's a nice poetic <laughs> moment. Mm-hmm. And there's a cut in the film that's particularly beautiful. But I don't know what to ask you about that, except I'm basically saying I admired that oh, thank you. idea <laughs> visually. Thank um, you. you know, yeah, it's, uh, you know, because Persian New Year is such an important theme in the film and uh, obviously in Iran it's it's springtime and it signifies new beginnings and rebirth. and uh, and But I've only ever experienced it as autumn because it's, you know, March 21st and this part of the world, it's autumn and it's just got a completely different energy uh, that's really confusing <laughs> when you think about the meanings of Noru's. But, you know, I really wanted to capture that, that that dichotomy and 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 the feeling of Australian Noru's and what that is and what it means to us and, you know, trying to find the visual representation of it. Uh, for Shader and and her journey of you know letting go of her past and shedding shedding the trauma or or, or trying to um, in order to kind of rebuild. But I like the moment that the camera it just becomes suddenly there are these trees in the back of a shot, which is a shot in, in fact where Shader mm-hmm. is talking to this man she's met. Oh yes, 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 yes. You yes. know, in a, and they're in a library, I think. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly mm-hmm. you realize that this layer of symbolism is mm-hmm. coming. Is, remains in the background but becomes suddenly foregrounded, you know, in terms yeah. of the focus of the scene, which I, I quite liked. Oh, I'm glad that you like that. <laughs> I think it's quite romantic. <laughs> yes, no, it's very romantic. I don't want to give too much away. No, it's, um, uh, yeah, we'll keep keep the spoilers at bay. Yeah. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and uh, good luck with the film. Likewise. By the way, what was it like at Sundance getting, was that the first major validation when you got the audience award in the world it's called the world, world competition. World cinema dramatic competition. 
Yeah, it's Sundance. Is the title, yeah. What's it like receiving that? And it was a year where there were other Australians, right? There was mm-hmm. the the Racka Racka guys. The Racka Racka guys. Um, I don't think we were in the same competition. Uh, there was no other. Oh, wait. I think Bad Behaviour was in, in the same competition as me, which is Alice Englert's right. debut film, yep. um, Jane Campion's Daughter. And there were some important female-led oh, yeah. films, of course, that year. There was Scrapper. Scrapper was in the same mm. competition. Um, yeah, look, it was an incredible lineup of films and filmmakers and it was actually the first time we'd even shown the film uh, to an audience. We, we finished the film a week before the festival we got in actually with a rough cut in November and then we had to like run to the finish line. But yeah, it was very nerve wracking because we hadn't actually sat in a cinema with a group of people and watched the film. So it was an out of body experience. Uh, I will never forget it. I will never forget the laughs and the tears and the feeling that the audience kind of gave throughout the whole time. And, um, you know, just feeling connected to all of these familiar strangers and uh, we had such an emotional response afterwards. I mean, to be honest, after every screening, uh, it's been an emotional response. Like I'm often consoling people, they're crying, telling me about their life and their experience. It's so beautiful the way it connects to people on that soul level. Um, and it, to be honest, at Sundance, I realized how universal the film is, how how it it's just beyond us. It's beyond me and my mom. It's it's not ours anymore. It's it's for the audience, and I'm so grateful for for people coming to see the film and connecting with it in that way. It's, it just means everything. Nora Nyasari, writer director of Shader, a film I liked a lot. Go see it next week in Australian cinemas. And if that conversation raised issues for you, a number you can call is one eight hundred respect one eight hundred respect. By the way, a shout out to the cinematographer as well. We spoke so much about the look of the film, which is fantastic. Uh, the cinematographer is Sherwin Akbarzadeh. You've been listening to The Screen Show. I'm Jason DeRosso. The producer, as always, is Sarah Corbett. Thanks to the ABC RN sound engineers for getting it into your ears. We're back next week with more. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.